Welcome to Learning with Lowell. I'm your host, Lowell Thompson. We cover biotech and science-related topics on this show, such as startups working on antibiotic drugs or colon cancer, to venture capitalists talking about funding and how that worked, to people talking about how they and you could found a science-backed startup. Two, and this is one of my favorite parts, people talking about science, specific science-related topics such as whales or protein engineering. You're really going to get a lot, and it's all going to be about science on this podcast. Today, we're joined by founders Gian and Jose of Symbiosis. Symbiosis is a materials innovation startup working out of the UK, London region. They were a part of Deep Science Ventures. In this episode, we will get into their startup journey, how they met each other, how their unique qualities that make them uniquely suited to make a materials science and materials innovation company. And really, we learned a lot about what they've learned over the scope of their careers as a startup people, both very scientific. So I think you're going to get a lot out of this conversation. Let's get into this. So I, I thought it was kind of fun that symbiosis has nothing to do with synthetic biology. So I was wondering if you could explain that real quick, since this is going to be the first thing people hear. It was meant to be a play out with tech. I, want, I wanted to create a company that had a symbiotic relationship between the different sciences and engineering, but also between academia and industry. And symbiotic and symbiosis was taken. So I decided to go with symbiosis because it's still quite close. There was, there was a parallel that uh, the first bit of grant funding that we got was for synthetic biology, which would confuse people even more. I think it was coincidence more than anything. Do you get do you get static from people who are like they're expecting A, but really you guys do B? A little bit, even even more so because we we de- we delivered on this project for a synthetic silk film. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it takes ten to fifteen seconds to explain that we're not really synthetic biology, but we are a materials innovation company. So we do everything, which will include synthetic biology at some point in the future. How did you two meet? And I, I believe you're a part of Deep Science Ventures as well, right? Yeah. So I actually helped Mark and Dom for a couple of months before the program started and um, kind of ironing out some of the more, you know, fiddly bits. And then I joined into the first cohort. It's called Alpha co- Cohort. I called it the guinea pig cohort in a fond way, more than anything. Enjoy, I enjoy being the guinea pig for, for interesting new projects. So yeah, in this first iteration of the program, we, the, the people involved kind of took a big role in, in molding how the program went, and, which is a big part of, well, brainstorming was one of the main parts here. So actually coming up with a good idea and um, coming together. So it was 30, diff, 30 people from different areas in science and engineering. I guess Dom's told you all about it. For, from, the, from the previous podcast. And from that, it was really interesting to get a, a lot of other people's perspectives. But also, it was interesting to see where communication would break down because of simple things like nomenclature, where a physicist would call something one thing, the chemist the other, and then the biologist would have no idea what you're talking about because they've only heard it in a, in a layman term. And the program went on. It was, it was really interesting, really fun. And I think halfway through the program, one of the one of the synthetic biologists actually found a a grant call from this organization called DSTL, so it's the Defense Science and Technology Laboratory, which I think is seen as a UK version of DARPA, right? So they're the innovation fund of the Ministry of Defense, and they had a grant call for uh, synthetic biology for transparent armor. And there was a whole bunch of us that kind of heard the synthetic biologist um, kind of tell everyone. So we decided to group together. The deadline was a couple of days. 
to, to write this uh, to write this this application, and we just knuckled down and basically wrote for forty eight hours solid and made our plan. We didn't sleep very much, but you know it was really really fun. like almost like a hackathon type uh, activity. And then we submitted the application. A granteton, yeah. <laughs> and then we thought nothing of it, right? We we forgot about it. And then at the end of the DSV program, there's a there's pitch day, right? Almost like a like a demo day, like you have in NY Combinator and EF. So a week and a half before that, I get an email saying, "Congratulations, you've got the grant." And after two hours of celebrations, I then had a full-on panic attack because then I realized that I had to deliver on this. <laughs> and because of about a month had passed since we wrote the application. Most of the other people have found other projects and they were going to pitch that project to form a company. I decided to keep going with it because it was really interesting. Um, and I kind of came up with the, with the main idea anyway for this. So then I dropped what I was doing and I had a week and a half to form a company and a business plan and a slide deck and a pitch deck and then pitch this thing to investors. It was a very, very fun week and a half of me scrambling around trying to find the right people and trying to build a team. So I... Since the age of 16, I've been working for startups here at Imperial College in London, and I did my undergrad here, and then I left, went to another startup, and I came back and did my PhD at Imperial. So it's almost like Stockholm Syndrome, right? You kind of, you hate it, but you learn to love it after a while. So the end result is I had quite a big network uh, of people within within this um, institution. So the first thing I did was reach out to all the people that I knew, and one of the uh, PIs in physics introduced me to a postdoc called Gareth. Turns out that he had a really neat idea for something else, for another technology, not the uh, synthetic biology for transparent armor But it's a really cool idea. So I brought him on. Um, I also got along really well. But then I saw that I had two physicists, that we need an engineer. So I spammed the entire mechanical engineering and aeronautical engineering department here at Imperial. And John was one of the people that replied. But, you know, you've got, you, you've got like love at first sight, right? You, you know that expression? So I immediately kind of thought that Jan would probably go, he was probably going to be the best applicant because everyone came back with, you know, half a page reply of, oh yeah, I'm interested. Can we have a chat? Jan came back with like a 2000 word essay on why he was the best person for the job and an 80 page presentation on all the work he's done in his PhD and before just to demonstrate how amazing he was. And I went, you know what? This is pretty impressive. So we met up Gareth, who's the other guy who's not here. And it all kind of kicked off from there. I think the old situation was quite serendipitous because, I mean, the other phase of the old situation was that I was finishing my PhD at the time. I was like two years and a half in, something like that. And I was at that stage where I pretty much, I was done with the work. I had my results. I just had to finish writing up. I was considering what like to do with my future, essentially. And I was very unsatisfied with my experience of academic research in terms of in general uh, like the the, the the kind of the outlook the, the on, on research the outlook of, of on society the kind of like the politics of academia and at the same time all my friends that finished their phd and went into the industry were complaining all the time with me and they were telling me like that their job was so boring that they will they felt like they did not have any impact that they they that everything was going so slowly and like the inertia was Huge. So by that time, I kind of had already decided I wanted to do something different. I wanted to get into like a startup environment where things move move like fast and you can have a real impact. So by that time, I had already decided that, and I actually was about to submit an application for the second court of DSV. So at that time, I received Joseph's email, and he's telling me, "Okay, I 
came out of the first DSV course, I already have an idea, I already have funding, and I need someone that has, like, the email they sent, the, the description, the profile of the person they needed was, like, spot on for, for my background. So I was like, yeah, this is perfect. Yeah. I mean, I, I wanted to go to the, you're essentially saving me six months of time, and, and like, we are a great match of, of, of idea and skills. So, yeah, let's do this. It's always kind of interesting how things work out. It's like uh, as soon as you are looking for someone who can help you with accounting, then you like accountants start like falling from the sky and stuff. It's kind of funny. Not literally, of course. That would be kind of weird. But so there's about three of you on the team so far. Yeah, we're with with three people, and then we have two business advisors and one academic advisor. How would you describe each other's best skills? Like, are, do you guys have specialization, or is there more like everyone kind of helps out on each individual thing? We have quite different personalities, so we've got different soft skill sets, but also different academic um, and technical skill sets. So Gareth, who isn't here, he's um, he's a shock physicist, so he's really good at shooting stuff in a scientific manner, seeing how things break down. Precision loading. Yeah, it's not. He doesn't. He doesn't have a gun. He has a precision loading platform. That's that's the way he described it. Which is a big gun. Which is a really big gun, but a really big gun. <laughs> so yeah, he he's. He's really knowledgeable on anything in the in the materials on the on the security side of things, you know. Protect for me, it's solid state physics, and my PhD was in solar cells. So designing solar cells, the optical systems to essentially concentrate light onto them to make them more efficient. And then in my my other hat in the other companies I've worked for before was in spectroscopy for gas detection for protein analysis. I've worked in microhydroelectricity, but then I also did some sales and pitching for some as well. So it's not just a technical side, but more on the kind of selling, talking to people, gathering requirements, making customers happy. So I'm, I, I guess I'm the big mouth of the company as well. I'm also a bit of a magpie, so I get attracted by new ventures, quite motivated to, to keep things going. I love a good deadline. That's the, that's the biggest motive, biggest way to get me going. Jan is calculating. He, he's a guy that grounds me. <laughs> yeah, so right. we are, we're quite complementary in the sense that yeah, Jose is is, is a force of nature and like it goes after every opportunity, every chance, every challenge. And I I gave the thing a little bit more structure, and sometimes I try to to grind into the ground and and to like ask all those difficult questions that you need to ask sometimes when you need to like evaluate a new business proposition or a, or a new business idea essentially. In terms of the technical skills, I'm, I'm the engineer of the group. I'm a mechanical engineer by training. I worked on uh, material structure, modeling of the structural materials. I did a lot of testing, especially in the aeronautical industry for several military and, and civilian programs. Uh, if you need to make something physical, there is a good chance I can help you. <laughs> it's like you got someone who can really get into the deepness of the research. One person who can kind of find the people who would who would care about that and one person who can kind of make it make it happen not to just diminish your your scientist scientific abilities jose but that seems like a a pretty good pipeline that's all right i can admit that that's one of my strengths yeah a question for you jose is since you've been in so many startups why did you feel that you needed to get a phd to do what you wanted to do when you could i guess kind of like invent your what you wanted to do so i I was asking myself the same question the year after uh, my master's. And in fact, the, the company that I was working for, the second company I was working for after my master's was um, 
this gas detection for um, oil and gas and other sectors. And the CTO of that company, I, I, I'd known since I was 14. And he's a very logical person. Uh, he had a PhD. He was a, me- he was a mechanical engineer. And <laughs> I don't know what the, what the, if it was coincidence or correlation, but basically he was about to, to leave the company to, he was, he was moving country actually. So he, he was about to leave the company and he sat me, he sat me down the week before he left and he went, look, I'm going to give you all the pros and cons about doing a PhD. So he, um, he basically logicked me into deciding that a PhD was the best way forward. And the reasons for that were, okay, the cons are you lose four years of your life. It's four years of you kind of developing your human skills. You're actually getting firsthand experience in the industry. And that's great. And the PhD kind of stops you from doing that. On the flip side, PhD is a great way to become a specialist in the subject. You do develop quite a big network being an academic and being a specialist in the field. You develop the ability to motivate yourself and to, and to give yourself and to develop discipline to complete any project that's put in front of you. And it also allows you to be more creative than if you were working in a company. A company is basically, here's a task, go do it. In academia, it's just, here's an idea, do what you want with it. Have fun. And more cynically, this, this is probably not the case now, but, you know, five, six years ago, investors and generally other laymen wouldn't really see you as a real scientist if you didn't have a doctor before your name. That makes sense. You kind of got the lab coat effect a little bit. Basically, yeah. 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 So when you, when, you, I don't know, when you interact with investors and stuff, do you, do you find like there's like things that they tend to ask you or like, like, are you surprised by the things that they ask you when you're when they're like, hey, describe your company? And like you do it, and they like they do. Do they ever come at it from an angle you just like completely have, have no idea that what they're you know like completely out of nowhere, or is it like okay they're just asking like hey what do we do how are we gonna do it you know simple straightforward stuff. I mean usually we are the one that take them by surprise. Yeah, <laughs> I guess me because I because I've been around it for so long. It yeah, if if anything was gonna surprise me ten years ago, I've already forgotten about all the surprise bits of it. Anna, did anything surprise you, Jan? Not I wouldn't say surprise me. As I said, we are surprising investors in the sense that we have a bit of an atypical setup for a startup of this kind. Usually a startup is born around a single business idea and a single product and everything is geared toward that. But we realized quite soon that that type of model would not really work for us because we want to build something much bigger and much more interesting than that. We wouldn't be satisfied with like hacking together a single product and just and just start selling it. We want to really develop new technologies and be a material innovation company, kind of kind of show a different way to do to do this kind of material development, material research. And in that sense, that kind of surprises investors because they're used to the other model, so they start like being a little bit cagey. Yeah, they're a little bit surprised by this, and they're a little bit afraid. Oh, are you gonna be uh, spread too thin? You're not gonna be distracted. You're gonna be distracted. They don't realize that we come from a background where we were used to juggle five different projects and supervise ten different people at the same time. That's what I was doing during my PhD. So I'm used to that, and and I I have a track record of delivering against that. Mm-hmm. And we all, the three of us, do. And, and also, I think it's, 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 the, it's the best way to de-risk their investment. Yeah. Us to create something really new and not a single, like a one-trick pony. Actually, yeah, maybe, maybe the one thing that's really 
ground, ground me down a little bit is how different investors are on this side of the pond compared to your side. The level of ambition is insane over there, impressive in, in a good way. And you just do not see that over here in the UK or in Europe. So it's really hard to pitch a grand idea because it just terrifies people over here. And they see it as way too risky. Right. So that I wouldn't call it surprising. It's just annoying. Let's call it, let's call it annoying. <laughs> it sounds like annoying. Yeah. Do, have, you yeah. Con- have you considered uh, either moving to the United States or specifically targeting investors from the United States then? Yeah, we're now shifting our focus to the States. Okay. This podcast will help like 70% come from the United States. Before we jump, before we jump into what you guys have built, I always think it's fun to hear what people are nerdy about. Well, what, what am I nerdy about? I love going to the IMAX. <laughs> I wouldn't call it nerdy, but I really enjoy going to sci-fi in the IMAX and appreciating the terrible science in Hollywood films. I'm that, I'm that annoying guy that laughs out loud to bad science. Everyone around saying, yeah, that science sounds legit, and you've just got this weirdo at the back kind of chuckling along to the, to the absurdity of things. A, a lame, nerdy thing to do. Pacific Rim 1 was my favorite all nerdy things with beautiful catchphrases such as, my robot is analog, so it won't be affected by EM pulses. Or this wormhole is atomic in nature. <laughs> I didn't it, catch it, those. That's funny. Watch it again. Watch it again. You should definitely watch it again. Have you seen Interstellar? Apparently, that's pretty science accurate. Oh, so oh, uh, some re- no, well, some real <laughs> some real science went in, into designing the the black hole, right? That famous black that black hole has two two or three papers that, that that have been published on it. So developing new ray trace models to determine how a black hole will would be seen if you actually saw it. And I did so the 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 graphic design or the the, the CGI company that designed that black hole they did a series of presentations around London. So they came to Imperial, and the guy who kind of sat with the the head scientist, who I think is a professor at MIT or Harvard. Yes, he he came to Imperial and gave a one and a half hour talk on how they on how they developed this black hole, and it was fascinating. I think they they, they might have released one of these talks online, so you should check it out. Um, I'll give I'll give you a link later to the company that made this black hole. Only, I, only thing I know is that it looked much better in IMAX. It looked yeah, it looked unbelievable. <laughs> Interstellar in IMAX is an experience. I guess my my other nerdy subject is I'm I'm a skydiver, which is an unbelievably nerdy. Well, it's people think people think it's quite kind of jump around a plane and have fun but there's a lot of uh, safety and regulation and you have to know every single thing about the kit that you're strapping onto yourself in order to you know not die um it's quite it's, it's a really really technical sport it's like any any extreme sport any if you, if you go into, into climbing for example scuba diving it's the same thing you have to be super aware of the technology which you surround yourself with in order to survive to have fun safely yeah, when when and I don't maybe this is like an American thing, but when you guys go to the theaters, do you ever ever a theater where they serve you food and alcohol while you watch it? You have like a table and like a really comfy chair. Mm. And there's mm, two yeah. cinemas I think in London that do this. Really? Yeah, there's one just down the road. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. A little bit different. I I know what you mean by is that different than that the American experience. Different. Okay. I, I've never had the American cinema experience. It's pretty obnoxious. Oh, I mean, you probably get like people who talk and are weird and stuff too. It's probably not just Americas, Americans who do that. But yeah, it can get kind of annoying. <laughs> what about what about you, John? Well, so I'm I'm an aerospace engineer. Okay, so uh, when I was four, my my favorite game 
Well, let's go like that was so my, my favorite way to, to pass the time was to draw spaceships and I had a suitcase with all my design that I would carry pretty much everywhere and so I, I think that was probably that I, I, was, I was a nerd born and bred essentially that's what I've done a suitcase full of of spaceship designs spaceship cartoons yeah were they good have you looked at them with the ex with your experience I, I think they were pretty good yeah <laughs> considering considering i was four i was pretty forward looking yeah four did you ever like do the math and create like a reusable rocket and like tony uh not tony stark the elon musk guy like took it like that was like a plot <laughs> Big Bang you know I, I should go back to it and see if i had a design for a reusable rocket if i did i'm gonna ask him for royalties mm-hmm. nice he's pretty open about the patent so maybe he'll just like put your name there for fun if you actually did like hey i made this one six he said like he'd be cool about it. That should be the logo for the uh, for the BFR, right? Your little cartoon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're doing pretty great things. So is uh, for you, I imagine probably Elon Musk inspires you since you're like aerospace. But are there people that inspire you in the startup space that you kind of like watch and inspire you in general? It's not inspiring, but I it's, I, I don't really have a, an idol that I look for. It's more it's more looking at it from a statistical perspective and trying to get the best attributes from as many big people as possible. Yeah, I don't really have one set idol, really. I mean, I was like... I was very inspired by Elon Musk, let's say pre uh, pre fame, before he became like a global idol and and like losing his mind a little bit. But like his first version, like initial test Tesla, initial um, SpaceX thing, yeah, I thought thought it was very very exciting, especially because I was in the U.S. at that time where he like. Tesla was starting to become big and he was starting to have like the old dispute between SpaceX, SpaceX and ULA. So uh, yeah, I think it was definitely one of my inspirations. I think that the, the, an inspirational concept, which is, which is actually, which is a, a British concept of a, a man building stuff in a shed. That's quite an inspirational thought to have, uh, <laughs> which I guess a lot, a lot of the, the UK engineering heroes are just these men in a shed building stuff like catering, the catering cars are basically do-it-yourself cars was it the guy from from the falcon project so one of the, one of the uk's best rocket scientists is just man builds rockets in sheds and just got good at it oh yeah but i mean all the great engineering companies oh. started in a shed essentially who, who was that who or, was that in a one, garage there was that one kid that, that built a nuclear reactor in his shed ah yeah he was amazing he was like 12 years old and made a fission react that that's inspirational yeah okay. <laughs> or the um or that in or that um that guy in india that built a plane on the roof of his house a year ago, right? No, I, I'm gonna have to look this up. I don't know about that guy. I know hey, about the kid. Yeah, this guy. He was just a random guy, and one day he decided to build a plane. So he read some books on how to build a plane, and he scavenged a whole load of parts, and then built a plane on the roof of his house. And only after he built it did he figure out how to kind of move it, because then he realized he couldn't really take off with it, and he was in like the middle of Delhi. <laughs> so, well, one problem at a time, right? Like he, he he needed to build the plane, and now he needs to. I don't. He can probably skylift it out or something. That's an interesting problem to have. I only get a plane off my roof, but the it's it's those it's inspirational concepts rather than inspirational people. Is it really like you guys are? I don't know scientists. And then I'll jump into last question that is kind of silly, but is it really that difficult to make a fissionable fissionable reactor nowadays? Like I think the hard part was like knowing how it's done. I think you could just look up the designs and do it, right? Or is it actually having, difficult? I mean, the, it's the, having the balls to do it. Yeah, the kid, the kid, the kid's dad was a nuclear engineer, so it, it might have 
had something to do with that, I think. But I mean, still having the balls to do it and to figure that there are still a lot of difficult things to figure out. You still have to get are, some radioactive material. When you are 12 or 14 <laughs> yeah. to hack together a nuclear reactor. Well, it, actually, it actually worked. I thought it was just like he got close, but he didn't have the nuclear fission or material. Maybe I'm thinking of the guy in the United States. Yeah, I know. I think he got close. He didn't actually got, got fission. But but the thing it's, in, prin- in he, principle he, could he, have no, been. He tried. Yeah, it's impressive. Yeah, I was just he thinking. Tried. Yeah. I was just thinking, like, all, all things considered, but... <laughs> I mean, there are professors of engineering here at university that struggle turning on, like, a, a projector when they have to, to project their slide on the, on the whiteboard. So I'll say that a 14-year-old kid making a nuclear reaction in, in his garage is <laughs> pretty impressive. Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> no, no, yeah, it's impressive. I just I always wondered, like, technically, like, how... I, probably, I don't know. I don't want to look up how to build a nuclear thing, because in the United States, I, I, you don't... You don't do that. But, so, <laughs> like you'd be watched so closely. But all right. So what's jump, your nerdy? What's my nerdy thing? I like bees. I, I I used to have an apiary. They all died out. I want to get more of them. I, I really love bees. Like oh, bees. No. why why did they okay. die? What happened? Probably a combination of stupidity and colonial collapse disorder. Bees aren't doing too well. They're they're still doing pretty well in the United States. Like they used to be doing much less. But like the net loss is only two percent each year. If you think about it, when they like gain things back, like they, they die by about thirty percent over the winter months, but then like they breed real quickly. Um, yeah, yeah, bees are fantastic. You can make honey. The top of the stuff on there's like this white foam that goes on the top of honey, and that's basically an antibiotic. And honey, the darker mm-hmm. it is, the more like if you eat honey, it'll boost your immune system. And if you yeah. keep jars of honey uh, stored correctly, they'll basically never go bad. So they found <laughs> jars of honey in Egypt, and they just warmed it up, and it's all good. It's like it's really hard yeah. to. F- like mess with honey yeah it's fantastic i like i like bees i like science there's a lot of things I, I it's really hard to find things i don't like i like to read a lot of biographies and stuff it's like i like movies. my ner- nerd thing is probably bees though like i, I like I, it's like really hard to breed them appropriately but they yeah. have like a really short li- a somewhat short life cycle so you can do really interesting breeding like yeah. genetic like genetics it's is like, like my thing i like genetics so yeah that's it i like bees if you wanted to talk about bees we'll do it another time because we'll so go for a very always- long time so um, the project that I, that I dropped when I found out about this grant application was about saving the bees in the UK. So it was, it was, it was how to stop the spread of certain diseases. Are the bees dying in the UK? Oh, yeah, they're collapsing a little bit, yeah. yeah. Mm. All over the place uh, besides Australia. Like this combination of raw mite, pop, the uh, poisons, not poisons, the stuff we put on crops. I grew up on a farm. I don't know why yeah, I'm blanking. No, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's just a so, combination of things that just piss them off and they're dying. Europe just uh, just oh the European Council just banned the use of neonics mm-hmm. just last week. So they've uh, I think they they've annoyed Monsanto and Syngenta a little bit. They have to get over it. They have the United but, States and, and Asia. I thought, I thought one of the one of the big problems with bees is at least in America because you you've got the you've got the touring apiaries that basically focus on one flower at a time. So bees aren't getting the kind of natural variation um, in the honey, so they're not getting the right nutritional needs. That's fair. We do basically feed them sugar and say be healthy. I we do have a, a lot of mono monocultures, monocrops, which I mean, like they don't get pollen from corn. So like we have a lot of corn, we have a lot of of those things where it's just like the same thing over and over again. So like you need a lot of variability, like you're saying. But like even just wild bees are having a real tough time because they don't have a lot of places to hang out where they can be like because they they basically have a three mile di- like diameter around them where they fly every day. And so, like, you don't get that many bees in an area. And then you strip out, all, like, around here, where I'm at, people keep stripping down the trees and the hedgerows, basically, which removes yeah. even more of what other organisms would use to kind of live. So they can get, like, an extra tenth of an acre 
of crops, which, you know, over 50 years, it'll add to something, but like, it's kind of detrimental. There, there are some ideas to like make like bee, bee highways where like we have forests strategically placed so bees can like go around and, you know, uh, pollinate and do some genetic stuff so that they don't get like weird and bruised. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, like I said, you probably don't want to go on this line. Go on this line. Uh, when did you, cause I, I believe there's a couple iterations before you landed at the kind of like not specified, but bigger, like trying to interesting. So, how long did it take you to find this iteration? You know, like how many tries, like, hey, we slowly ringed out. And you're like, now we're at where we want to be. And you, I assume that wasn't like right away. So I'm just asking, like, how long did that take? You mean, you mean no, for the but, company or for the, or for the technology? Both. Like, how, yeah. Basically, how long did you know, like, how long did it take you to get? Like, so the, the, the ethos of the company about, about uh, innovation came about pretty quickly. In fact, that's kind of what bonded us all together was us three realized that innovation is broken in academia but it's also broken in industry and that we we have an idea on how to fix it and how to bridge the two sectors together so that was that was a year ago um the 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 things that we've iterated is how we go about that um how to solve the miscommunication issue and the misalignment of objectives between the two different sectors um Academics have have different motivations than than scientists in industry, and so you have to marry. You kind of have to marry the two, uh, which is which is a bit a bit complicated. Um, so that, yeah, that's that, that's what we. It's been, a lot of politics. It's yeah. a lot of politics. Regarding the technology, as Jose was saying before, the technology the the idea kind of started with the grant um, about synthetic uh, materials for transparent uh, materials for um, bulletproof Just, applications. Yeah, transparent armor. Transparent armor. And out of that uh, initial grant, we started working on different ideas. The one we eventually landed on was that this transparent silk film. So we started working with normal, like silkworm cocoons, which is your essentially the same stuff that goes into textiles and clothes and that kind of thing. But we develop a process to to extract the structural proteins from from the silk, and we ended up making this transparent silk film, which is the strongest that we could find reported in the literature mm-hmm. by quite uh, by quite a bit actually. Mm-hmm. And but still, despite the fact that we developed probably the strongest silk film uh, in the literature, we realized that the market possibilities for transparent armor were not uh, like it wasn't the best possible application. So despite the fact that we were probably out of that grant call, 20 people applied and we were arguably the company with the best results. We decide to be very open with the funding body and tell them, look, we have developed this material, which is the best of the bunch. And despite that, we don't think this is really gonna find an application in the market. So we will be disingenuous in taking further funding on this. But at the same time, we were looking around and we realized that another thing that they were being interested on was materials to treat wounded soldiers in the front line. So regenerative. Regenerative medicine. We started doing some reading, and we realized that silk films are ex- are very very good for that. And actually, one of the main problems that was lamented by practitioners and like researchers in that field was that, despite the fact that these silk films have very very good kind of biocompatibility properties, they didn't have the right mechanical properties. So they were too weak to be to be practical to use in the field, and that's exactly the problem that we had solved. 
Mm-hmm. So it was, it was again another kind of serendipity moment. So we found, yeah, that's, that's great. Like there is the per, there is the need, there is the funding, there is the, we, we, we kind of already solved the main problem that people were having. So this sounds like perfect match. And we decided to go down that road, which is the one of wound dressing for regenerative medicine. Mm-hmm. So that's the route that we're now pursuing for this research. Yeah, that's, that's where I'm. Yeah. How much more effective is your way of going about it? Versus, like, if you were, if I were to take a regular bandaid and put like put it on my leg over a wound, like, how much more effective would your technology be? Or do you have like an idea yet, or is it still like, a couple down the road? With respect of other leading products, or with respect of just your wound kind of healing naturally? So it'll 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 be it'll be at least as good as what you see out there. But the difference is um is also how you apply it. So just see it as you can just it's like cling film or like oh, saran wrap. Okay. You just wrap yeah. around yourself and it'll be just as effective as, as something that you have to stick on and it comes off after two hours because the adhesive is terrible. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you can also bind antibiotic and antibacterial stuff onto, onto the film itself, mm-hmm. which people, which people are kind of toying with already with silk films, but if only it wouldn't just split. So the issue, the issue with the silk is you, you put it on, it acts like any other kind of wound dressing, but then it's, it's too weak and it just cracks. Mm. So then you've just exposed the wound to, the outside environment there so are it's, it's whatever it's whatever's out there now but strongest it, will, it won't fall apart as easily yeah. as anything else and also i mean there are there are products that are available commercially for wound like wound dressing and and regenerative medicine at the moment most of them are based on collagen but they're very expensive they can be as expensive as 500 dollars per square meter essentially our material potentially has the same regenerative properties for $20 per square meter. Wow. That's a significant reduction. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, but yeah, it's not be, too bad. It'll be quite useful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So how long will you, will it take before you know if it's going to have all those properties that you're looking for? And that that's the nifty thing about it. Like all the research has already been done, essentially. Like there is like a large body of research that proves that silk films are very good in, in treating wounds and they promote uh, regeneration of the skin. They they let oxygen in, but they keep pathogens out. Like all these research yeah. has already been done. Mm-hmm. But all these researchers kind of lament the fact that to bring it to commercial applications, you need to find a way to manufacture consistently the silk film and to give it the right mechanical yeah. properties. Mm-hmm. That's where we yeah. come in. So, so it's, it's more than a method of verifying if it works for that application, which of course needs to, to be done. It's more like we just have to prove that we can do the same as what the literature says. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah, you're basically like sewing it together. So you're bringing the, the two yeah. pieces of flesh and you're like, bloop, to make sure it like heals appropriately and this in the like a metaphorical sense like you're not like healing then that's a horrible metaphor i don't know why i would go that way <laughs> i'm not good at metaphors i don't know why i try but basically you're just tying the boat like you're kind of you got everything out there you're just validating that it works and then you're going to the really special thing that you felt all the pieces are there we just need to, to put them together yeah 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 we've solved the puzzle basically <laughs> that's a much better analogy and metaphor than <laughs> whatever i was trying to say so then like how long before that component is done like how like what are like the next big things that you have to like get through before you can have your technology built that will be helping people? so so we we would basically need to partner up with with a manufacturer so so we have we have the method to produce it we would need the manufacturing firepower to make this 
um, but then also the legal firepower just to get everything approved. So silk as a material is already FDA approved, but you still have to get the, the product itself approved, which is a lot easier if the, if the base materials are already approved. Uh, so it's just a matter of scaling up and getting things certified. And, and then cl clinical trials, which yes. are, yeah. yeah. So actually our, our plan is scale up of manufacturing of the technology, then clinical trial, uh, and then getting getting the FDA approval, and then it's going to be ready for commercialization. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Does does the military or government see like the maybe this is not something they typically do, but can they see what you guys are trying to do and be like, hey, we want to help you out, like either find, helping you find partners or making it easier for you to develop what you're doing because they see how it's going to help them in the long run? Yeah. So we so the leading UK uh, military practitioners are very interested, and they've given they've given their support to us. Um, so they definitely see the value of of this product in the field. Um, the UK government is also very keen, but they don't have too much money to give to people to develop technology. Mm. Um, again, the UK is a, is a lot better at this. Uh, so the US is a lot better. <laughs> yeah. Anything for um, defense defending, <laughs> you just kind of write your check. Um, so yeah, but you kind of mentioned before that you have like a team of advisors or like some people that are advisors that are part of the team. Who are the people you'd want to look for to partner with now in the United States or in general so that people who are listening be like, hey, I know someone like that. Maybe they can refer them to you. Yeah, it's in the U.S. It will be um, people that are involved in the approval process for, for biomedical devices um, and also manufacturers of wound dressings, skin grafts. Basically, so those two people. Is there is there like a component that we haven't described about what's like most and remarkable that like if you're out, I don't know if you guys go to bars or go to cocktail. I don't I don't know if people go to cocktail parties exist somewhere, but like and people ask you what you do, like what are the things that you're like this is so great and you like they have to be like hey guys, <laughs> this is supposed to be you know really small. Like what are the things that kind of make you? Um, the one is it's, it's still quite nerdy, but the fact that our our material is what an order of magnitude stronger and tougher than anything that's out there. Um, so it can stretch a hundred times more. It can withstand a hundred times more than any other material. Um, and that's on, that's on the silk stuff, basically. <laughs> I think for a while I, I was going around with um, a sample of the silk film in my wallet. So I would show it to people. I will literally show it to people. It looks like a piece of plastic, transparent plastic, really tough, transparent plastic. Mm -hmm. And I would tell them like, so if they ask me, what do you do? I would just hand them this thing. Like, this is the stuff that we do, and this is silk. So they would start looking around it and kind of try to see the the the, um, the weaving of fibers inside the thing. And they would say, they would, the, the usual reaction was like, I, I cannot see the fibers. How, how is this silk? Mm -hmm. And at that time, I have to explain them. No, no, like the entire film is 100% silk. It's just, it's just transparent. transparent. And it looks... <laughs> And it looks like plastic, and it feels like plastic. Does yeah. Silk, it, does silk normally? Why would I thought silk kind of felt different than plastic? Why does it have like that kind of feel to it? Does silk, I never touched silk, so I don't know. But like, does doesn't silk feel different than plastic? Well, uh, silk in the traditional sense is you know a fabric. Yeah. Um, but the way we do is we we break it down into its into its constituent proteins, hmm. and then rebuild it. So it's almost like um, I mean, normal plastic, like a plastic bottle, is still technically plastic fibers. But, oh, okay. You know, the tiny, tiny ones that are intercalated. Oh, that makes sense. So it's the same thing. So it's, it's the same structure as, as PET, which you have in water bottles, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. All right, so it's kind of yeah. like, if it's like a different, I don't know if you guys play games, but it's like, just a, like it's the same base thing, but just a different tech tree. 
uh, but it's like, yeah. Um, which for people who play games, you'll know what I'm saying. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll send, I'll send you a photo of, of one of our sidewalls. It's, it's like a hundred percent transparent. That's you can't awesome. tell it. It, it. Yeah, it does feel like a transparent plastic. Essentially. Yeah. I, I was actually going to ask if you've made any samples, like how to kind of like show people. So that, that kind of answers that question. Like how much have you made? I mean, you got a pocket amount, but like, have you made like a, I don't know, how much have you made? So we're, we're limited to making I think something the size of an A4 piece of paper. Yeah, that's roughly it. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've made a few square meters of the, of the stuff in the past six months. Yeah, mm-hmm. but always, yeah, always. Always like. An A4 sheet at a time. Yeah. Actually. Okay. We're just limited to the, uh, to the facilities that we have right now. Mm-hmm. Um, the annoying thing, so the thing about our, our, our techniques is that it's more optimized for large scale processing. So it's less efficient in the lab scale. Mm-hmm. So this is when you, this is us coming in as engineers to a, to a biological product, right? We mm-hmm. always think about the most efficient way on the large scale. Mm-hmm. That's smart. I mean, it makes sense that it would be more difficult to make in a, in a small scale. I mean, that's why we have factories, you know, like the assembly lines and stuff to make things more effectively. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. What resonates with people when they can finally understand it completely? Do Is it the transparency, strength, and the future application that people tend to, to take away from it? Or is there like some nuance in what people seem to care about? when? Uh, on the investor side of things, it's just the cost. So it'll be <laughs> 10 times cheaper. So that's that's what gets them quite excited. Yeah. And um, with everyone else, it's the the romantic picture of using silk for, for a medical. But so just say the word silk and it, and it gets people excited, I think. Um, so, so, I mean, at, at Imperial, we've got a guy that's that's put silk inside a violin and people have gone nuts for it. And it's sustainable, <laughs> right? The, yeah. It's better, better than plastic in the sense that it's sustainable. It's still incredibly expensive to process and produce. I mean, t- to make silk, you need to grow a whole load of mulberry trees and then you feed the leaves from those trees to the silkworms. They have to then grow for 21, 27 days and then you have to boil them alive <laughs> in their cocoons and then you have to get the silk out um, and then you have to process it. Mm-hmm. Well, isn't, isn't plastic made from oil or something? I don't know how plastic is made. I thought it was made from like oil that you dig up from the ground. Is that how you make plastic? But, uh, yeah. Uh, growing, silk is, growing silk is a little bit less scalable than drilling a few holes in an oil field, unfortunately. Yeah. Plus, I mean, most of the plastic is kind of a byproduct of fuel refinement processes. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's kind of efficient because you dig out the oil to, to make the fuel and then you get the plastic as a byproduct. That's why it's so cheap. Yeah, and then, you know, and then and there's been a hundred and hundred odd years of R and D in petrochemicals that you have to compete with if you're trying to go up against plastic. So we we did consider uh, this material for um, biodegradable kind of plastic products, but you just you just can't compete on price for that. It's impossible. Yeah, I think it's still good that it's that it's sustainable in the ecological sense. Like, sure, you have to like murder a bunch of. <laughs> of silkworms and stuff but like you can breed more of those like versus like a, there's only a certain amount of oil on the ground it's a renewable yeah. process it's re- yeah. 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 yeah that's what i meant yeah yeah sustainable in that yeah. sense not maybe sustainable in cost which definitely. yeah it makes it's sense re- you, yeah it's a renewable resource yeah in that sense definitely you can also eat the silkworms they're considered the delicacy in some places <laughs> in asia yeah so for every so. for every square meter that you order you get a, a silkworm as a treat um you get a you get a you get a worm burger how about that <laughs> There you go. So you said that when you guys are done with 
like the first stage of kind of getting scale with manufacturing, you're going to have to do clinical trials. Have you have you done clinical trials before? Like, what are there like hurdles that you expect to have, or is it kind of going to be straightforward? Uh, clinical trials are never a linear process. Yeah, no, so we, we we'd have to we'd have to hire in a, a, a doctor or someone who's who's experienced in doing clinical trials. Or, we we can do a lot in the lab anyway, and in vitro, and kind of just looking at cell propagation studies on on the film itself. Um, Most likely, we will have to partner with um, with a big company, some, someone with like a significant stakehold in the in the biomedical application field. Is there anyone that interests you like that? We are already yeah. talking to to a few companies, definitely. Yes, so we, are, yeah. we are we are talking to a few primes, and they are they are quite interested, and they are definitely someone that we could collaborate with in the future. But we're always open to speaking to to anyone as well. What about your website? That looks so barren. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's work in progress. It's gonna go live in in a few days, probably. Yeah. Because you're about like a year or so into the process. Are the people who just started here? You're like, hey, these are just the things that you should really be paying attention to. I I actually helped build an entrepreneurship lecture course here in the physics department at Imperial. So it was as me and one of our advisors. We headed it and we and we lectured it. And the the biggest, a couple of the biggest surprises to the to the students that we taught. Was the was the value of expanding your network and actually how to network? So the the importance of leveraging who you know to be introduced to more people to then leverage again to to get into contact with more people and how to sell yourself in a way to encourage others to want to introduce you to other people. How do you do that? It's to essentially have a thirty second elevator pitch about yourself, list all the things. Well, the, the homework to do before is to to. Build a list of, of everything that you find is impressive about yourself and tie that into a, into something that could be a story that someone will then think, oh, that's quite interesting. I, I, I like you because of, you know, X, Y, and Z. Oh, you did this at university. Oh, that's quite cool. Oh, your interest is this. Oh, I know someone that, that you'd like to have a conversation with. The, the, well, you, you need to have a narrative. Yeah. Yeah. You just throw a bunch of a bunch of Facts, scattered yeah. information and, and random data points. You need to have a narrative for whatever whatever you say. And I think you also have to be very aware all the time about the person that you have in front of you and what are they looking to get from the conversation. Not just you are looking to get out of that conversation, that meeting, but also what they are looking to get out of it. That's actually an interesting point in that you should be mindful of who you're talking to. Do you ever, when you do your little elevator pitch, do you ever layer it in a way where you can kind of speak to, like, because sometimes you can't tell whether or not someone will help you out because they want to help you out, like they're, like, philanthropic. Yeah. Yeah, or versus where, like, they, they, like, they perceive the, like, they like people to believe that they're very giving, but really they're all about the numbers. Like, so, like, do you ever, like, layer in how you speak to someone so that you can be like, oh, this is the good things, but then, like, hit, like, hard things that usually sell people that are just about how to help their bottom line so you can kind of get both or yeah how do you handle that because that's something that i i think about all the time like how can i hit both in such a way where they like it plays to them and yet yeah it's it's knowing two things one which organization you're speaking to and where that person is within the organization if you want to if you want to think really cynically everyone wants to climb up the career ladder so you what you need to be is a way to facilitate that um, so, which means they need to present something attractive to their superiors, which can give them ammunition to be promoted. One thing, if you're if you're speaking to someone further up the the hierarchy, so if you're talking to the CEO level, that person's probably bored out of his or her mind, um, and probably going through a bit of crisis, and they're looking for something to give their life a bit a bit more meaning. 
um, in, in, in that sense, you want them to see a bit of themselves in you. So you want to be seen as a bit of a protege so that they can kind of get that nice fluffy feeling inside when they're helping you out. If you're speaking to someone lower down, they're fresh faced, they're keen. So you want to feed that enthusiasm. And then depending on the organization, if you want to talk to the government, it's all about uh, the goods that you're doing for society and, and for the country. If you're talking to an investor, it's going to be, well, this is how much money you're going to make. Um, if you're speaking to university, it's about how can we boost your reputation? As, as Jose was saying, I mean, it ties, it ties up well with what I was saying. That like, You have to be aware of like what the other person agenda is. Essentially, What are they looking to get out of you? Because they, they are looking to get something out of you. So you need to be aware of it. But as you were saying, sometimes people have an agenda and there is no really way to know. Yeah. So sometimes you do have to take a little bit of a leap of faith. And that yeah. is part of entrepreneurship, I it's, think. Yeah. And, and, you, and you learn through experience about who the person is in front of you. So you've got to break some eggs, right? The worst case scenario is you're going to get a no, right? Like, but it's, you don't yeah. know if you're going to get no until you ask. So just like put yourself out there. Like some people have like this really weird, I don't know, like phobia of just talking to people. And they're like, oh, the person's going to be mean to you. It's like, great. You can hang up. Like what? Like what, what's really gonna? There's like a there's probably like a thousand more people just like them who aren't gonna you know where ten of them aren't gonna be mean to you. Find those ten. It's just a process of elimination. There's there's good people in every sector. So it's I was thinking it's exactly. yeah that's one of the things I've enjoyed uh, in my experience of like interacting with people is that there are a lot more kind and generous people out there than you realize. And yeah, even yeah. the cynical ones are not that bad. People who are rude like they're manageable. You know like you you put them in their little corner, you give them like a soda pop, and you just kind of work around. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is it's. I mean, what, what's what's the biggest hate home point you've learned in in, this, in your podcast series for French entrepreneurship and for yeah? I think people fail to realize how much it comes down to another person. That ultimately the per the the thing that is stopping you, like let's let's say all your tech is working out right, like ultimately that's something that you guys can control, like how hard you work and you know the literature you've done and like that type of stuff. You can control those those things, but I think people seem to think that there's like these this government agency that's kind of like a soda bottle or a, or a pen that has like these arbitrary rules that they don't really understand when ultimately it's another person, like another person's wielding that pen. And so if the pen's tell is writing, no, you know, find the hand. And but there's always a way around here and a no. I think that's one of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm very surprised by how often people fail to realize that the thing that is opposing them or the thing that's, that's going to help them very much is another person. So like when it comes to investors, it's like, there, and this is why I learned, uh, like James Field referenced this pretty pretty keenly, is that like there's different types of investors, and there for biotech, there's a third of them that are really good at that, like they can see the value, but there's there's two thirds that are not going to help you at all, that are just not going to get it. They're going to ask the wrong questions, and if you learn to differentiate, you can one save yourself time and be kind of like focused down on what you're doing. So that kind of answers the second thing as well. But like I think the big thing is people. And then knowing like that finding money isn't that big of a concern. I mean, it's clearly a concern, right? Like, you know, you know, there's not infinite funds and you have to make a good pitch. You have to do all these things. But like yeah. if you're finding the right people, it becomes much easier to get them to say yes, right? Like if, if I'm yeah. if I'm thirsty, right, and I'm in the middle of the desert and you come to me with water, I'm going to I'm going to help you out. If we're in the middle of a rainforest and you come to me with water, it's not going to interest me as much. You're like, you got to find the right people. I'm not good at metaphors, but like you get yeah. what I'm saying. <laughs> So like that's that's probably the biggest thing is like uh I think investor relations people put too like like there's people too like just as long as you maintain the bottom line I think that's pretty great and then I think yeah. just like people I think I think people don't realize how often people are going to be the thing that stands in your way and I think that's really yeah. great 
because you can convince someone to be on your team. You know, like if you take, like you think about it enough, or you work hard enough. Like there's, there's like those people that like no matter what they're gonna be dicks. But like I said, you just put them in the corner and, and give them a soda pop. It's probably I don't know, consistent or inconsistent with your experience. Uh, yeah, basically, uh, apart from government, um, in, in government people, the 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 dicks of they they can be. You have to learn to get around people. So you, ha- you do have to get everybody on your side in government. Do you know of uh, Benjamin Franklin by Walter Isaacson? I don't know the book, no. no. Oh, I would recommend checking it out. Be- Benjamin Franklin's really great. This is one of the, if people want to learn how to manage people better, this is a book I always recommend because Benjamin Franklin goes from being like a duck, stupid, basically, at how to, like to the point where a person tricked him to move to England to get stuff with the promise of funding him to get typefaces and printing material to bring back to America to start a newspaper. The guy had no intention of helping him. And if Benjamin Franklin knew what to look for, he would have known that too. So he got stuck in England for a while. You know, this horrible place, but... Um, <laughs> that was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, by the end of his career, he's the reason that France stepped in. Like, he figured out how to emulate the French and what the French wanted to see in America to get them to come in on it. And there's a bunch of examples of Benjamin Franklin figuring out how to deal with people. And I like, it's a really great book. If you want to like see how one person went from being stupid to being basically the guy that defeated an empire with his skills, like that's the person I recommend. It's, it's really good. Great. That sounds, sounds great. That sounds cool actually. Yeah. Um, do you guys have any, I don't know, business or, or material science type books that kind of, that you recommend to people? Like if, if someone was interested in what you guys are doing, are there any primer books that they could read more about and be like, hey, I get to learn more now? Or do you have to have a PhD? Do you have to ask people questions? I mean, one of, I mean, I really like Randall Monroe's Thing Explainer. Have you, do, you, do you know about, do you know Randall Monroe or Not who part, he is? No. He's, he's a creator of XKCD. And he, he, he wrote this book. It's not right. He drew a book. Um, and it's got a blueprint of different machines he's got like a blueprint of a submarine a blueprint of the saturn V rocket a blueprint of a washing machine and then writing to describe all the different components in it but he's but he's written it with only the thousand most common words in the english dictionary so it's really interesting when he can't call a rocket a rocket because it's not one of the thousand most common words so he calls it an upgoer (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right yeah. and you can't call a nozzle a nozzle so he's just like thing which fire comes out of and yeah and it's a it's a, it's a fantastic book it's really detailed and it's really basic english which anyone can understand and it's the perfect book which would excite a five or a six-year-old into, into science and engineering that's just really really cool to look at as well yeah i have to get yeah to get a copy of that thing explainer that's what it's called yeah. A book that I recommend pretty much everybody uh, is uh, Zen oh, and one. the Art of the Motorcycle Maintenance. Oh, yeah, I hear a lot of good things about that one. Yeah, I think if you, if you want to understand what is wrong with engineering and, and the way we teach engineering and science in academia, if you want to understand why I still don't have flying cars, what went wrong? Do you remember like in the 70s, like in the 70s and, and 80s, the science picture where like, we pictured the 2010, 2020 with flying cars and the most like crazy tech. Basically the Jetsons, right? Yeah. yeah. Why we don't, why we didn't get that and instead we got like these tiny screens that we, yeah, <laughs> and we got Instagram instead. Instagram. I, th- I think that's the perfect. I, I forget the name of the fund, but it's it, Peter Thiel runs it. I think that's the, like their motto. We wanted flying cars but we settled for instagram or twitter yeah it sounds yeah yeah, it it sounds appropriate yeah (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. it's uh peter teal out in silicon Silicon valley i think like that's their motto like 
They want to fund stuff that isn't, you know, like that gets you the Jetson type stuff. If you want to understand why planes have been the same in the last 50 years, essentially, and and the biggest innovation in planes introduced by Airbus or Boeing in the last 30 years have been winglets. Yeah. Uh, read, read that book and 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 then and then you real you, you understand a little bit better. Yeah, excellent. Then all right. So for people who want to follow along, like how can people pay attention to you? How can people listen? I know there's like you know probably contact you on LinkedIn or something, but other uh, yeah, we have a LinkedIn page. Yeah, now. we have a LinkedIn page. Just it's also still not heavily populated, but our website's going to go live uh, in a few days. Yeah. yeah, and that's going to be the main the main source of information and updates and that was john and jose of symbiosis we got to learn about their startup journey how they blow investors away when the confusing nature of their name and yet how it actually captures they're trying to build and quite a lot of things i hope you got some from this and if you like this type of content please let me know so i can make more stuff like this or do different things you know feedback is great thank you for joining us today with learning with lol don't forget to subscribe and leave a review we can be found on twitter at lol was here facebook and on the website learningwithlol.com also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends. Please and thank you. Bye.